A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us in the section that we are reading. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You can think of us as your drunk weekly book club. And drunk we are, Crossland. As mentioned before in the previous before. episode, our, our previous episode. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh shit. This is some <laughs> yes. timeline shit right now. <laughs> yeah. All right. The very <laughs> <No>. <laughs> first episode. The very first episode of this podcast is our short story of product placement, where we talk about how we're doing a two for one, uh, recording two at once. Uh, this is the second episode of that week or of that, of that night. And, uh, on top of everything, Crossland and I just took a shot. Now we're feeling, we're feeling good. This shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, We've only I'm got ha- about a hundred pages to cover. Yeah. No, no worries. We're, we're well lubricated, I think, is the right way to put it. Yes. Yeah, um, starting hot, as they say. <laughs> too hot. <All laughs> too right. hot. Too hot. So today we'll be discussing up to chapter 29 in part three of Red Rising, subtitled Gold. So chap- up to chapter 29, not through in our copies. That's two page 218. I don't know yet what happens three. after the end of 28, but you'll know when you hit the fucking... Oh shit, Mark. You'll be like, all right, yeah, that's that's the right place to stop. I hate you, Crossland, for making me stop reading right there. <laughs> I hate you so goddamn much. Dude, when I, when I was reading through to pick out chapters to uh to get this going for you, I was like, I know whatever point we approach, the cliffhanger to lead PJ on is the tightest reveal. Yeah. And I was just I was so pleased that you were so stressed out by that reveal. It's, uh, oh, it's satisfying to be. Yeah. So like if you forget, if you're reading along and for some reason you've listened to the intro to this episode, but haven't read the book yet, uh, you'll know. <laughs> you'll know. <laughs> you also know if you've gone too far, but it'll be fine. So first, let's talk about what we're drinking. What are uh, what are you having now for uh, part two of tonight? So I have a sidecar. I made myself a sidecar. So that is Cointreau, cognac and lemon juice. Sounds and good. I, I think it's uh what? One ounce of Cointreau, one and a half ounces of cognac, and 0.75 ounces of lemon juice. I think I doubled it, though. I don't remember. I made it before the other episode. It's just been sitting on my desk, so all the ice is gone. I knew we were... Did you have to re-stir it? No, no, no. I I didn't re-stir it. Usually, it's not served on ice, but just to keep it cold, I just put some ice cubes in there. So now... A little bit more voluminous, a little bit less strong, but still cold. So we're good. Following that is Raindrops by Barrel Theory. It's a straight New England IPA, Citra, and Mosaic. Just tasty. Just tasty. Tasty, tasty, tasty. Mm-hmm. I'm happy with it. And I am, I know I, I lied in the first episode and said that I was having a cocktail to follow it up. I do not actually have a cocktail. I am following up the scotch with whiskey. So we have mm-hmm. switched from the Macallan 12 in our time warped episode to rye bullet bourbon with a chaser of a stone FML. All right. I think that's the same thing you had last time. Well, the FML was. You had yeah, I was going to say, I, FML has been my 
kind of like go to chaser beer. It's strong. It's good. It's it's a solid you know, beer. Yeah. Nothing too insanely like flavorful that you have to like sit and really think about it. You can just enjoy it for what it is. You know, it's it's just no a double what. IPA. Like it's just a solid double IPA. Yeah. So this week we've got a lot of shit to talk about. This in theory will probably be one of our longest episodes so far, but I feel like I've done a good job of pairing it back. Big picture, zoom, zoom out a little bit kind of analysis. Yeah, and we get we get some interesting big picture stuff, right? So to start off. The beginning of this chapter, we left our hero before we read this massive chunk with a ton of stuff that happens reeling from having to brutally murder Julian in the passage. Right. Though I am alone, I know I will soon find others. They want me to soak in the guilt for now. They want me to lonely, mournful, so that when I meet the others, the winners, I will be relieved. The murders will bind us and I will find company of the winner a salve to my guilt. I do not love my fellow students, but I will think I do. Darrow's been put through the <sighs> shit. <sighs> and it seems, it seems to me that he cares less about the fact that he just killed someone and more about having to face Cassius. Cassius. Mm-hmm. What did we Cassius. decide on? It's Cassius. Cassius. Going forward, at least. Right here, obviously, he's mostly talking about himself and like what he's thinking, but he's kind of removing himself from the situation by thinking about like, what are the architects of this curriculum intending? Mm -hmm. And I I feel like that's probably a pretty good way to like really rationally think about what's going on, break down what's happening to you without getting overly emotional about it. I think it makes sense. Yeah, I, I feel like that's very on message. I, he is very much interpreting it as this is what they want me to pull from the experience. And we, we learned a little bit more from Roke in a bit, but there and that's also what they're going for is exactly what Darrow is thinking and feeling. Yeah. So I, part of my perspective on this that I thought was interesting is the tunnel, the passage, the calling. It seems to reflect each of our characters in interesting ways. What do you pick up on this with the characters that are explicitly spoken about? I mean, it's very clear that there were lambs for the slaughter and they're not they're not really shy about it. Like there were half of the students chosen explicitly because they were weak and would not put up much of a fight, but they would really test the mental fortitude of the students that they actually have picked for the house. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously like I think I'm assuming Roke. Did they ever explicitly say that? That Roke was the upset? Yeah, that Roke was upset. That was 100%. No, no, no. No, sorry. They never said that Roke was an upset. I also don't think they ever explained Or Servo. Who- Servo. Sorry, Severo. Servo. Severo. Severo. Yeah. Not uh, Servo. I also this don't think that MST3K. was... This is an MST3K. Tom <laughs> <Yeah>. Servo. <laughs> I don't think that was explained, but I do agree with they, you. They imply it. Yeah. I feel like talking about like the way he kind of looks whenever whatever golden child is mentioned, which again, not mentioned, but we're assuming that he's the one that bested him. Yeah. Priam, so, right. So Priam. the fact that Priam got his throat smashed in, which I definitely have a quote of it's alluded to that way. Titus alludes that he killed Priam and everyone can pretty much pick up immediately that it's a lie. Right. You know, when they, when they hit that, would you think of uh, Roke's reading from the passage as well as Antonia's like the, Roke was actually broken up and upset. Yeah, Roke is 
like they they talked about him as being sort of the poet and a little bit more of the artsy kind of guy at least that's the <laughs> way i kind of understood it which tells me not necessarily and by no means a, a rule but it tells me probably a little bit more emotional than the rest of the students and emotionally mm-hmm. driven and i don't really have a good rationale behind that that's just kind of the read i got yeah that's fair so I guess it makes sense that he'll be a little bit more broken up over the fact that he had to murder one of his fellow students in cold blood. Like, it's yeah. a kind of a fucked up thing to do. And clearly it it, it haunts him. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think the other part of it, too, is that Roke kind of knew that this was coming. It's not so specific as to say his mom's a member of the board, right? Which is oh, the genetic right, right, board right. that's in yep. charge of everything. And I love that Roke gives us kind of a peek behind the evolutionary Darwinistic curtain, right? Like low colors are given catalysts, all births are altered to have shorter terms except obsidians and golds. The Board of Quality Control is firmly convinced that 13.62% of all gold children should die before one year of age. Sometimes they make reality fit that number. Why? Because they believe civilization weakens natural selection. They do nature's work so that we do not become a soft race. And I think that like his whole peek behind that curtain from his mom's perspective, because he despises his mom who's on the board, is interesting. And I think it kind of gives way to him being upset about it because he's had time before this to kind of think about it and contemplate on how society's going and sort of the brutality of it all. That's that's definitely part of the passage that I was thinking about, like his explicit disagreement with the way that the gold society is run. And mm-hmm. his closeness, closeness to the board mm-hmm. familiarly. Totally. I, I think the other part here that's interesting. There, there's there's two other two other comments here that are interesting. Antonia walks away almost enjoying the experience, right? Like she kind of like slides out and she's smiling and kind of, you know, live in her own way. But then Darrow questions also, was there a reason Julian was to die? Like, why did Julian need to die? Why was he... Why was he not considered an upper echelon? Yeah, he's not as good as Cassius, but why'd you throw him against me? Is he really that low? Was he was he a low draft? They never explicitly say, although it's assumed that he was probably given an artificial boost because of his status as a Bologna, right? Right. That's that's the only assumption there. Yeah, man. But also, like, that family's pretty important. Mm-hmm. Right. Second most important family in Mars. If they have any enemies within the people making decisions on who fights who. That's a pretty easy, like, oh, sorry, your son got bested. Can't do anything about it. Oops. Kind of deal. Yeah. And we kind of we kind of get a peek behind that curtain, too, a little bit later, which I think is interesting with something that we'll bring up when we get there. I really liked this is just a nice piece of foreshadowing. We don't really need to talk about it too much. It is the primest hand that will tear this house apart. And... Just strictly good foreshadowing, just like plant the seed and then watch everything else unravel. And it basically all unravels over who's going to be the primus of House Mars. That's really a majority of the story that we read. Something I hadn't noticed, but is also foreshadowing on 144. If you are thrown in the deep end and you do not swim, you will drown, he says and raises his thin eyebrows. So so keep swimming, right? I force a chuckle, a poet's logic. But that situation plays out almost exactly later yeah, on. Yeah, him and Cassius in the pond. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Hadn't hadn't made that connection. Hadn't remembered that comment. Totally. That's that's also a really good call. But but he talks about it, doesn't he? He's like, I, I'm I don't I don't know how to swim, but I'm a fast learner. Right. 
Actually, that's a really good call. That's like an explicit connection of those two things. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Good call, PJ. Hmm. Good work. It's like wow. I'm learning to look at to, look at you to read or something. Cheers. I'll drink for that. <laughs> um. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not some idiot, but well, I definitely like. I'm just well, I'm just I'm not. I'm not some idiot all the time. So yeah, I am. All right. Cassius is searching for his brother. And ultimately sitting next to his brother's killer is a deadly sort of irony. We're, we're left with some of yeah. our main characters and given a reason as to why they survived and other di- didn't, right? Right. <sighs> and this, this is natural selection, right, after all. And it does have its mm-hmm. surprises. Was there anything that surprised you? I was surprised that Fitcher, Fit, Fitchner. Fitcher, Fitchner, Fitchner, genuinely, my expectation, the way that Darrow was like saying like, Oh, they're going to like keep us in the dark and not tell us about who killed who just to let us like kind of eat ourselves from the inside out. I thought like I really thought Darrow was going to like deflect a question about who he killed and then immediately like the name of the person that they killed was going to show up on their like name tag. Mm. That's really what I thought was going to happen and immediately cause like explicit outward frustration and like anger between students. Totally, totally. So I, I similarly loved that and actually noted the line. Um, I loved Fitchner's specifically about Priam and the death of Priam that we already talked about. And I won't say who, because that undermined the fun of this whole curriculum. But someone knocked him down onto stone and then stomped on his trachea till he died. <laughs> like, right. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that stuck in my head. Too. <laughs> yeah. And that just gives the like this whole this whole combination of passage and this section is really the introduction to the brutality of the rest of the universe. We've learned that this isn't this is has strictly left the Hunger Games at the door, like the young adult fiction at the door. This is now brutal Games of Thrones era or like level calling and killing death. Any character at any time just so if Cassius was to know immediately that Daryl was the one that killed his brother. Do you think he would have forgiven him? Um, no, 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 I don't think so. I think okay. there's a level of pride there in golds that demand retribution for crimes against family, especially. And I think that's fair. That, and I, I don't blame you for like having this impression right now. We haven't really gotten into some of the family stuff and I, I don't want to allude or hint to anything, but I think this is really kind of the first incidence of, what does violence against a family look like and how is it judged? And yeah, we just haven't gotten there. I don't think so, though. Not softly. Yeah, I guess is the answer. Not well. It does not go well. So Fitchner, after that, kind of makes up the Institute to almost be a natural selection aptitude test where maybe you get a job in the end, kind of like college. <laughs> like, in a way. It seems a little bit more sure than college. Seems more assured. <laughs> Yeah. No, because if you get slaved, you're ashamed, basically. Like, you're you're yeah. almost guaranteed unless you were, like, exemplar in your house, right? Like, you're, you're sitting. Yeah, good point. Good point. Good point. Right? Like, you can leave, like, a regular graduate. I was just trying to make a joke about college. True. Like, <laughs> you're, you're right, and I'm on your side, but I was just trying to make a joke about mm-hmm. college. And fucking hard it is to find a job after college sometimes, even with a, like, degree in a desirable field anyway that's my life let's go so i love on page 149 the term cuddle slaves 
Yeah. And we mentioned with obsidians and it made me laugh out loud and also like want to cry in fear. Yeah. I was thinking cuddle slaves. So pinks typically is what I got out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you think obsidians will follow little turds like you, those baby stranglers would make you their little cuddle slaves if they saw weakness. So you must show none. Right. And that's right. Fisher kind of given his encouraging speak is like, you have to own the obsidians, like the low colors that they are. Or else you'll be turned into their little fuck toys. Right. But it more made a connection to what we talked about last week with the derivatives of the different colors and like the versions of the different colors still having a connection. And I had postulated that pinks were a split off of red. And this literally uses the word slave to describe what they do. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You're, you're definitely not far off. That's that's a good call. Like an owned pink might have the derogatory term cuddle slave attached with them. Right. Definitely. That's what that's what I got out of it. Oh, just a more derogatory term for pink. So page 150, the quote, Titus is impossible to like. Yeah. Yeah, he fucking is. Titus <laughs> is one of the most deplorable characters in fiction that I've read. Yeah, but it's so good. <laughs> he's he's so bad and so good. Like it's he's infuriating Mm -hmm. but but before that before we get too far ahead of ourselves and what if your primus of the winning house antonia asks her uh she twirls a finger through her golden curls then welcome to glory darling welcome to fame and power so i must be primus like the stark like yes this is this is an explicit path to power so i must take that path Mm -hmm. which is exactly what he's there for but it's a very kind of robotic thought process of like i will do whatever i must do and i will have the goal of whatever will get me there faster yeah so darrow's goal like you're like you're saying what's your perception of darrow's goal like what's the real end game post institute for darrow I think it's a little muddy right now. I think I think because of everything that's going on with him, he doesn't have a clear view of what that goal is, but ultimately is to not only exact revenge on the injustices done to him and his own, but also to break them free of the chains that they found themselves in. Yeah. Okay, definitely. My thought I definitely agree with that. And I think that's the like larger metatextual goal. Obviously winning Primus is kind of like a, a milestone. Yeah, it, it's a it's a means to the end. Yep. If you if you had to predict what me winning Primus meant in like the next escalating step after doing that, what what comes after? Like in this moment that Darrow's dreaming forward, what does he see at the end? Actual tangible like societal power yeah right like this this is his path to a prominent place within the gold society where he has not only respect but actual the actual ability to get things done and the actual ability to go forward and like influence what's happening with the reds that he associates with yeah yeah i i definitely agree with you so in terms of the society structure do you picture him more as in like on the ground sort of general or like an admiral on a warship moving around you know more I, like I would think like something stuff. more bureaucratic more bureaucratic okay so more like a yeah I, that's yeah exactly something something where he can actually because like a Somebody who controls a fleet controls that fleet, but they don't change laws. 
and they don't have actual influence over like the structure of the society. But somebody like an arch governor, I'm guessing probably isn't a commander, but is strictly bureaucratic. Yeah, he's they, they explained earlier he's got a small fleet that is only rivaled, like the only fleet that's larger is the Bologna's fleet, which is the actual Imperator. Okay. Okay. So I guess my guess is that his, his goal would have less to do with the control of a fleet and more to do with the influence over the society. Whether that means he has to also control a fleet, I think is irrelevant to him. Yeah. But however, that society structured, I don't know it well enough yet. Interesting. No, 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 I'm, I'm I'm down. I just wanted to drag it out of you. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about you, but I, I've got two like loves in this next chapter in chapter 21. I love the imagery of the castle on Mars, like the idea of castles on Mars and this like deep fertile crescent. The world here is just painted in such a cool way. Yeah. All the lines are standout, so it doesn't make sense to read any one of them necessarily, but like everything is just painted in this beautiful picture. And I think at this point, 150 pages in, you kind of get used to Pierce Brown's prose. And it, it just all feels really good. But also it there's more going on and there's more information to actually convey. So it, it feels more natural. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like empty Shakespearean prose that is rambling and flowery for nothing. But it makes sense now the way he's writing with this more densely packed set of information. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something I had skipped over to was uh, was Leah's character. Um, Leah's really interesting. The the limping girl, the kind of wounded deer in, in a kind of literal sense that attaches to Rogue immediately is a very... I think she's an interesting character, albeit one note, but like... Yeah, and they, she doesn't get fleshed out that much beyond that either. I mean, there, there are a couple of moments that she has, right? Where yeah. like Darrow kind of like verbally abuses her basically to put her into place where she figures out her shit and actually becomes a person as opposed to a leech or a parasite. Right. Yeah, that's true. But I, I forgot to mention her and I wanted to do that. I also fucking love on page 154, Fitchner's contempt for Severo is so funny. Did anyone else hear a squat, ugly gob- little goblin go? Well, <laughs> whatever sound goblins make. Like <laughs> <laughs> And the, the fact that Goblin gets, it becomes almost an endearing nickname or a nickname that doesn't, not necessarily endearing, but a nickname that doesn't actually mean anything mm-hmm. and is just his nickname. Right, right. He is, he is a lot shorter than everyone else. You know, everyone else is like mid six, like three to six, five. Titus being the monstrous exception at like six, eight or something like that. Monstrous exception. Haha, you're six, seven. I get it. <laughs> But I also love like Severo's responses. Like, you know, he's at that point, Fitchner is telling him to drag deer and Severo just goes, dickwit. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's, there's so much contempt but there. It's, that's it, there's good. contempt there, but it's also like pretty realistic of like how teenagers getting dragged into the woods and yelled at and like withheld of food and just had to murder people. Like how are you, how would, how would most teenagers react to something like that? Mm-hmm. They're not going to be just kind of happy to go along with what's happening most of the time. I don't know. Make them walk a mile. They'll still fucking hate you. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no winning there. I know, yeah. I know earlier we had talked about the map that's on the front page and a little bit is right. given away by looking at the map explicitly. In terms I of where actually some things are. thought about that. 
So while I was reading this, I'm like, I'm just going to not look at the map because I remember there being like unknown campsites or whatever they call it. And I'm like, I, mm, I'm not going to look at it. It'll be good in a chapter or two and you'll, you'll appreciate that it exists um, once everything is kind of discovered. So, but just, just a reminder that the map can be useful if you get directionally lost. And it also helps. I was, I was, I was lost and I wanted to look at it but i i had the sort of foresight of i don't necessarily want to ruin anything about what might be playing out in the story yeah totally get that i like i like kind of the two towers between the rivers and also obviously severo's comment this is a slack and joke isn't it our legs are as wide as a pink horse you know and it's it's just on top of everything else it's really like if your legs are open well make a chastity belt to protect the soft spot Fitchner says it's just like oh like yeah no i mean like this is war and you made the analogy and now i'm gonna fuck you back with it slap you around with the the dildo of a metaphor like i don't know man this is i could have given you nothing Mm -hmm. you got a fucking castle right (laughs) protect it yeah i also so a point that hasn't necessarily fully been discussed yet so olympus is interesting right this like floating castle in the air propelling itself that all the proctors are at also the med bots come from what do you, what do you think about olympus what do you see with olympus in the future i'm intrigued by it because we haven't gotten into we haven't gotten into like magic at all yet mm-hmm. it's all been technology do you think it's magic no 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 not necessarily but it doesn't explicitly explain what's happening in the uh mechanics of making this mountain float my assumption is something very similar to the graph boots but that's a huge scale and to make it still look like a mountain mm-hmm. it's probably a pretty impressive undertaking yeah i i definitely don't disagree what i'll what i'll say is part of the interesting part of the story and part of the reason that i think this this trilogy this initial trilogy works so well is right now we're in darrow's perspective right and darrow has such limited knowledge of the society that he really doesn't get the way that everything works. And so when we get the line where he's describing Olympus, and I think it's Antonia's asks, like, how does it float? Or Leah, Leah asks, how does it float? And he's like, I don't fucking have any clue. Because he, he's just a fucking dirty red from the other ground. Like, he has no idea about any of this shit. And, like, either has to, like, make up a lie or figure out a, a reasonable reason why. And I think that's kind of interesting as a conceit for a character he has to discover why and we also have to discover why with him in a lot of circumstances yeah yeah no i i I appreciate the path that that's taking but it did seem out of place for this technologically advanced society with something that just just looks like a floating mountain out of like avatar like you do no sorry i was watching the legend of Korra. i thought you were talking about that avatar um you're talking avatar Uh, yeah, yep. not the last airbender. Got it. No, we're good. All right. Anyway, uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I also kind of like the advantages, like you were, you were mentioning earlier, the the castles. Like each house clearly has its own advantage. Um, Ceres, as we're presented, has crops and defensible position or in like a harder to defend position, but has easy access to water um, as well as like the apple trees and things like that. Uh, meanwhile, Mars has plenty of things to hunt and other defensible positions that aren't just the castle. Like they've got the two towers and another fort, right? So they've got right. like other options 
that's not just a castle to like protect themselves. Yeah, we can only assume that other houses also have other options. But no food and no fire and nothing like that. No real like actual survivable amenities. Like it doesn't matter how much you can hunt if you can't fucking cook it. Right, which which we do find out in short order. I think what's interesting is actually if the four defecting groups inside of Mars all agreed like a lot of the other houses probably did and came under you know singular control. I don't think Mars would have had the same problem because we do find out, obviously, that like Darrow and crew and Cassius and Roke and Leah very quickly find matches like they do find a source of fire for themselves, but they're unwilling to share it with Titus because they fear Titus just grabbing hold of it and taking the power of the match and the heat and the flame. Yeah, it, it was I less the fear. So my my understanding of it was less the fear of Titus having control of the fire and more the fear that Titus would maintain power, period. Yeah, right. Because in addition, he would have access to the fire and food and then strength. Yeah. So, and I mean, that's semantics a little bit, but I think it's important to note, like to mention that like, it's not that Darrow didn't want to share the fire with the rest of his team. It was that he wanted the power for himself and was unwilling to let someone else not even take credit, but gain the benefits of being Mm -hmm. the most powerful person on the team when fire was introduced to the entire house. It's it's just it's so good. There's so much interesting politics that goes goes on between some of these choices and decisions that are made. Right. There's a lot of strategy that goes on in between each of these decisions, like you're mentioning with Titus and the way that they restrict access to things to try to disadvantage him. And yet he just savages his way through things, especially in the Titus's war chapter. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's uh, getting back to the castles. I find it interesting too, that as far as we're presented with, with the castles that we know of, they all seem to rally around their central cause as winning as a house first versus Mars divided up into, well, I want to be Primus. And that goes back to the like house of Mars burns bright sort of theory and then burns out. You know, like house of Mars doesn't frequently win either. They burn bright or they burn out. And I feel like it's just an extension. Well, of usually both, bright. right? Yeah. Right. Burn bright to burn out versus burning through twice as bright, but half as long, whatever that metaphor is. Yeah. Whatever that uh, idiom idiom. idiom? Yep. It's an idiom. Good call. Good work, PJ. Learning things. I know what a fucking idiom is. (laughs) Um, So I I also, I love, I think, I think it's not only worthy of pointing out, but I love the fight that Cassius and Cassius and Darrow have. It's not Cassius. It's Cassius. I've heard it over the fucking audio. It is Cassius and it's pronounced correctly. I promise. I just, I I need to break the habit. But Cassius, the actual fucking name is spelled that way. I get it. The author says it a different way. And the, I know the narrator says it a different way. So I'm going with Cassius because I'm trying to say it the way that it's said in the audiobook. But Cassius and Darrow, that, that fight is just great. It's quick. They're quick and true friends, it feels like. And they know that they're wandering straight into a trap, but don't really care because they know that they're better. I just I love that conflict. Yeah. Uh, but not even not even not even not caring that they're running in. 
I mean, that's part of it, but I've done dumber things to feed my family. I did dumber things when someone uh, I love died. Cassius is owed the company as he races down the steep hillside. Like, yeah. he understands that this is a man acting in grief and despair mm-hmm. and wreck. Like, he's acting reckless out of that sort of rut. Totally. And knows exactly what it feels like to be in that exact rut and knows that he would have appreciated somebody to go along with him, even if it is fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, that, this is, this is a real show of compassion out of him that I think gets glossed over a little bit. No, that's, that's actually really, really good call out not something that i i like it's definitely darrow showing compassion for cassius and like i said they're they're quick friends and not only does he not only was he kind of like wanting to be cassius's friend but like awkward at first and like just didn't know how to do it properly it's it's not like he wouldn't have been but now he's in this uncomfortable situation where he's also killed his brother and has to keep that to himself you know like it's it's uncomfortable because in a different circumstance they would have been friends regardless and there would have been none of this pressure. And like, he totally like Daryl would have done this without hesitating and he doesn't hesitate. So here. Do, do you think, do you think he would have done it if he hadn't killed his brother? Yeah, I, I think so. I think because there is like a bond formed before this point. It's just, I think so too. I think this was strictly out of compassion for what Cassius was going through. Not necessarily the fact that he's the one that kind of put him there. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, I feel like there's a, an awkward backwards tension, which would almost push him away from wanting to do this. But instead, Darrow's character doubles down on it. Like Darrow's heart doubles down on like, no, I need to be here for my friend. Right. Because he also knows that it was his fault. It wasn't his choice, but it was his fault. Ah, uh, fault's a tough one. Fault's a tough technical word. Well, yeah, yeah. It, he didn't have it's an his, option. Right. It was, it was survivor. It's his guy. by his hand. Right. That's better. By his hand, but at the fault of the system. Right. Society. The board. So Darrow gets a sling blade as a weapon, huh? Not a sling blade. Well, it, kind of. It's a it's a Reaper's Crescent. It's close. It's close. It's almost the same thing, but it's got a different name. And that comes important later. Yeah. Right. So I, I also love the line inside of this fight as well which is it's all beautifully written and it's hard to like tear anything out but i love this little bit he is grace and finesse i am rage and momentum there there are so many moments especially in the combat that are shiver inducing like i reread that and i i got goosebumps they're they're just goose flesh inducing moments in this which is part of the reason that i love it yeah this combat especially combat and inner monologue Mm-hmm. Or whatever you want to call it. It's not quite inner, like third person inner monologue, I guess. Yeah. Because it's it, this is first person perspective, but he kind of like monologues as though he's talking to other people or imagining their circumstances from his perspective. Mm, I don't know about that. Because it's not like I do this. It's Darrow does this and is feeling this and is looking at it this way. So just omniscient third person but really cleanly done yeah i, I mean it's, it's all it's all first person but it's also written in such a good way of like bearing the eye like you're oh saying, it is third person isn't it it's first never mind it's first person it is first person. person yeah it is all first person but he does you're, such a, he does such right. a good i don't job know i don't know why it. i was thinking it was third yeah ex- well exactly mm-hmm. he does such a good job of hiding first person like chuck polinick is a first person writer. I don't know that he's written a third person book. I haven't read one or even a short story that's third person. Yeah. Hmm. So like Chuck Palahniuk is a 
a very important first person writer in in terms of the space and everything else. He's he's done a lot too outside of fiction, outside of outside of sci-fi and fantasy, which a lot of the times is written, especially fantasy is written in first person. So then the contrast, I guess, would be like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, which are high fantasy third, third person. person. Right. What what I, what I'm getting to though is that like what this does is Pierce Brown is so good at submerging you in the perspective that there are moments that feel like they're third person limited. But in reality, I genuinely like thinking about the scene. I genuinely thought like, oh, those descriptions, I would write them as a third person character. So I just assumed like, oh, yeah, that's third third person. Mm-hmm. Fucking idiot. I, All right. I definitely agree. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, well, yeah, I know. I know you would. <laughs> so so Derek gets it. Yeah, you are a fucking idiot. How serious shows up and uh, her banter with Fitchner. Is it serious? Fuck. Did I say that? No, it is serious. Fuck. Yeah, you, motherfucker. You got me. You what got the me. fuck? It was series. I, I didn't <laughs> think so. My bad. My bad. That was a pre-show thing. Anyway. Oh, was that pre-show? It was pre-show. Right. It's fine. Well, he and I fought about. I thought it was. I don't know. I thought it was Mercury for some reason. Anyway, how show, how, how series shows up and her banter with Fitchner is like a flirtatious fuck you and I'll fuck you later too kind of thing. Like it's a fuck you, please. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it seems like a lot of the other house proctors are doing kind of similar things and by things i don't mean like the the fuck you kind of thing like playing tricks on the houses during the orientation they talk about mercury with the rats for jupiter diana tattling a giant fucking phallic cake that fitchner <laughs> sent to someone with with what was in it woodpeckers woodpeckers, yeah, woodpeckers. Like a whole bunch of woodpeckers yeah. inside of it yeah to like tear holes <laughs> in the castle like it's, and it's the just, noise yeah and the noise it's it's just there's so much that's interesting and funny and it also this moment this section these last two sections remove us and kind of remove us from the society of the red and rub it in our face in a way you know the the severity of life is red is like life or death in every single moment and now we've been submerged in like jokes and games and debauchery that right. the golds play and i i think that that comparison is fascinating especially here it is definitely it's prevalent mm-hmm but if this is the source of it, I guess that makes sense. The source of the debauchery? The, this, like this. You're saying like the Institute. Yeah. If that's what kind of instills in them the sport of fucking with one another while also being ruthless, I guess that's, it's, it makes sense that that would be really instilled in them. Yeah, I, I think so. I think there are a lot of other things also. Like there's the, oh, I'm sure, over prolific aspect of even, even talking about the city that they went to and like Cassius's initial invitation to Aegea with, you know, saying like, we'll, we'll go to strip clubs. It'll be really cool. I'll pay for you. Don't worry about it. Whatever else. I, I think, I think that it's all, it all is that way. And I think it happens before, but it doesn't end at adulthood. Okay, gotcha. So Siri shows up and they're they're also like planning an ambush and Titus just fucking knocks over a horse. Um, <laughs> just like shoulders a horse. That's that's not the only time that happens. Doesn't Pax do that later also? Yep. Pax is, Pax is a beast more of a man than Titus is, which is terrifying for the record. Because but Pax does that while Darrow is on top of the horse. Pax just like fucking nose tackles. Pax out oh, Telemannus. The horse. Yeah. It's a horse. It's huge. those things are huge, man. And the, the amount of like, ugh. yeah. <sighs> yeah. That's a big dude. 
but Titus doing the same thing. Like he's a big dude, right? Just like here, it's it's almost it's it's shocking in that way. Like I couldn't imagine. I my parents in Texas own horses, and so I've seen and cleaned and like helped with the horses. But there's no fucking way I'd try to shoulder one of those things. Uh, no. I die. Like no way. <laughs> You would absolutely, no way. you'd die quickly. I would die quick. I you could would die probably quick. put up a little bit of a fight. No. But it'd be, it'd be pretty quick. <laughs> it would <hit> fast. <laughs> yeah. Like, no way. No way you shoulder a fucking horse. Like, ugh. That said, this passage and this, like, scene made me really excited about the idea of, like, another fucking beast. Mm-hmm. at Darrow's side it didn't work out that way but I was excited to see like oh this guy's gonna this guy's gonna brutalize some people mm-hmm. like run through and like wall. Darrow's gonna use him like a tool really effectively and I was excited to see that how that happened and half of that was true <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely brutalizes people, but Darrow has zero control over him. You're right. It's a good right. call. I, I also find it interesting in sort of this passage, we see kind of the way that golds play, right? Like Cassius laughs um, after Titus pisses himself, right? We're kind of given this perspective that that laughter, that laughing at him will reap consequences in the long run. And it definitely right. does in a mirror that's way worse for Cassius. <laughs> I didn't even make that connection until right now. Yeah. I I didn't yep. on my initial and subsequent read through my second read through. I did on my third. So if it makes you okay. Better. Fair enough. But it, it does play into that whole like gold society is, is such about the microaggressions to some degree, like all of it matters. So that also makes us as readers, I think, looking at this now, understanding the way that that can complicate things later is like, I need to pay attention to fucking everything because anything could come up and be a reason that someone would kill someone else. I also love the immediate comparison to the Hunger Games on page 161. It's almost countertextual in a way. So what would be the point, Fitchner talking, what would be the point if we now had the fittest just murder each other until there were only a few left? We want you to show us your brilliance, like Alexander, like Caesar, Napoleon, and Meriwater. We want you to manage an army, distribute justice, arrange for provisions of food and armor. Only a fool can stick a blade into another's belly. Any fool, sorry, not only. The school's role is to find the leaders of men, not the killers of men. And that's in response to Titus being a dick, basically. No shock. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like, Titus is like, I could murder everyone. <laughs> murder them so the point you silly children is not to kill but to conquer Mm -hmm. and how do you conquer in a game where there's no or where there are 11 enemy tribes take them out one but one at a time titus answers knowingly no ogre (laughs) (laughs) anybody besides ogre have a guess <laughs> I do. I do like the nicknaming of Titus's ogre. You know, it's some you, goblin yeah. ogre reaper. It's kind of yeah. It's yeah. No, I, I I've really been liking the uh, the use of the name reaper for Darrow. Mm-hmm. It it it's fitting. Like it, it it's fitting. It's kind of ominous and foreshadowing. I guess. Yeah. No. Definitely. It, it definitely foreshadows to some degree. And I think part of the reason that he can lean into it is because he likes using the sling blade. You know, it's it's sort of his tool of choice right now. The, the, it's a reaping scythe, but it's a sling blade. Effectively, it's a it's a question mark of a sword, as they call it in the text. So 
162, we're also introduced to the concept of how a house wins. Isn't killing, it's conquering. It's creating slaves with their standard, which is so good. That's such a cool, that's such a good concept. Like, yep, we're, we take you, we stick our flag on your head and you have to obey us or else society is going to deem you as inferior for the rest of your lives if you don't listen to what we say. Right. It's so good. Especially when that girl gets run over by horses later when she's a slave. That's a great scene. No, I, I'm just saying, like, the, the whole the whole thing stretches to a point with Titus. Titus abuses the system. So, Severo slash Goblin dragging in a wolf after he made a joke earlier about, you know, we could just eat the wolves is certainly something. And he pulls nails as weapons. And what do you think about Severo as a whole, huh? I love him. Yeah, I thought you would. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Severo's going to be PJ's favorite fucking character in he this book. is my favorite character. By far. Like, mm, it's not even close. <laughs> it's not even, like, he is the fourth faction. <laughs> yeah, he like, is so. And they refer to him as such multiple times. <laughs> yep. I mean, he shows up later, just himself. It's just... It's... Did you think I was just waking in the bushes? <laughs> well, yes, actually. Yeah, that was, like... that's one of the funniest moments of these sections. <laughs> when, when, like, Cassius and Jarrah were reflecting on it. And they're like, yeah, we thought we were just jerking... You, you were just jerking off in the bushes, like, not doing anything. And he's like, I fucking mapped out everything, you assholes. Like, I did a shit ton of work. <laughs> Like he is the like he's seriously as far as from the point where he finished reading backwards, mm-hmm. he's the most important character of Mars House. Oh yeah, yeah. From from where we're at reading backwards for sure. Him like, and Titus we, we would, in theory. We, and I, I guess Titus is a good yeah. Because Titus dominated the house, right? And almost did. Yeah, for different reasons. Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. different reasons, they're the most important. The most important to the story, but most important to the action, I think, is is Goblin. That said, the action exists because of the tyranny of Titus. Yep. And and really now we hit the tribes, we hit the section. What's interesting, and, and we can talk about this kind of generally too. So we, we do have kind of the we've got the Cassius, the Ca- Cassius, Cassius brain melt, Cassius, Darrow, Roke, Leah, and eventually Quinn. And Pebble, Clown, Weed, Thistle, that become like the low drafts underneath them that are one tribe. We've got Titus with Poxus and, and Nexus, right? Pollux, sorry. Pollux, Pollux and Vexus. Vexus, yeah. I just remapped a couple of Hearthstone cards on the characters in this book, which is not correct. Pollux and Vexus, yeah. A Titus goon trademark. You did put a trademark I in there. I did put a trademark in the notes. <laughs> uh, Another Titus goon. Yeah, <laughs> Antonia's house. Antonia's part of the house, right? We don't actually interact with Antonia's part of the house almost at all. Antonia's right. kind of um, on her own. And there, there, are, there are times when she seems to be like in the same kind of deal mm-hmm. as as Titus. Like they, they interact and are friendly with each, with each other pretty regularly. Yeah. Especially during battles. They're not with each other but they're not against each other so much as like Cassius right. and Darrow are against Titus and Severo in a similar way doesn't really have any allegiances we later figure he's aligned more with Darrow and Cassius but similarly it's kind of like 2v2 in a way it seems more like Severo is he is the lone wolf he'll be the lone wolf and he will fight for the house in whatever way he thinks the house 
house is most well equipped, I guess. Mm-hmm. Whatever whatever make makes for the best most likely victory. strength going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. That's the right way to put it. I, I totally agree. So, I also really love Severo's line about Antonia. Severo says, I wouldn't want Antonia to lead. She's a bitch. And then Antonia shrugs in agreement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's just like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I am a bitch. <laughs> like, just, just. You know what? Yeah. There's something to that. There's really something to that in leadership. I, I also think Antonia being able to admit that is an interesting thing for her character, right? Like there are in fiction, I think it's a it's a poorly worn trope at this point, but ice queens exist, right? I don't think Antonia right. is an ice queen. But I think she rides that she, sort she of She rides that track. line, but she's also self-aware of it in the same way. And I think that's what's more important. I think yes, that's what makes it exactly. more cold. Right. Is that she knows exactly what she's doing. She's a calculating ice queen intentionally Mm -hmm. pushing things the way that she wants to right totally i agree i think that's i think that's even colder don't you oh yeah 100 percent. i i think it's it 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 does lean into the character archetype even more but it also defies it in the way that most ice queens are like well you didn't get my coffee or whatever and so i'm firing you you know i i think to like double wears prada um and not in hathaway's character but the the other character that gets fired from the movie great Great flick, by the way. Highly recommend rewatching. I don't think I've ever seen that movie. Really, it's it's really great for characters. Would uh, okay. would recommend at this point. I've listened to the band. That's I don't know. I've listened to them. That's fair. I didn't say I listened to them that often. <laughs> I've listened to them more than I've watched the movie after the same fair, name. Fair. <laughs> I I love Titus's sort of exploits over like a page and a half where it's really just like explanation almost actually we're not quite there yet but everyone dislikes Titus obviously like no one likes him and his brutes you know like for instance on 169 Antonia manages to send groups armed with shovels and axes found in the castle to garrison and Demos and Phobos their towers the girl may be a spoiled witch but at least she's isn't stupid then Titus's pack steals their axes as they sleep, and I revise my opinion. <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of like a page and a half that reads like third person, but it's like first person journal entry from Darrow almost. And it condenses time in a way that makes it feel like third person in the way that you were talking about earlier. All right. All right. Hear me out. Getting into the uh, the segment of what would a film adaptation be? Mm-hmm. You just mentioned kind of following Darrow in a first person slash third person kind of deal. What if this entire series is done as a mockumentary? Of what? I mean, I don't, not, I don't like that. Not mocking. Uh, okay, mockumentary. I guess is probably I'm, the wrong. You're term. thinking like, office, but in the in the in this in the style of a an actual like camera crew following what's happening mm, with a little bit okay. of fourth wall breaking. So more like where the shadows where, where the. Mm, Blah, blah, blah. Uh, what they do in the shadows. What they do in the shadows. Thank you. Yep. Yep. So that that sort of style. Obviously, it would take away a lot. You'd have to do something kind of comedic about it. It would make it almost too comedic. You know, the, the, way, would. the way that I think about that when you mention that is I think to Starship Troopers in the way that it's kind of intentionally yeah. campy and then breaks away exactly. from the perspective. It is. Uh, which You're right. can be good. I think in the context of like Starship Troopers, but I think it would undersell the importance that the rest of this literature brings. I think you're right. I think that'd be a fun way to do it, though. If you were to do if you were to do like a small chunk of it, of course, 
it, it could and not do the entire series. It could be really interesting to do like an episode selling the Institute. You know, like you definitely could do an episode mockumentary style in the Institute, like falling around different houses <laughs> and like watching people just get brutally murdered for different reasons. Or like the phallic cake and the hummingbird opening up, the hummingbirds flying out <laughs> and then you jump to the razor blade bread or like you, you yeah can, you can the do, razor dude the razor blade bread yeah, I, i've got a note dude that was fucking brutal yeah right like the starving people get razor blade bread thrown at them like they eat it and then, <laughs> oh god they're screaming for like three days or something like that the screams finally die down it's just like yeah. I, I i just imagine darrow sitting around a fire with with a little like piece of what what were they called the not deer the small prancy deer that they have the scrawny deer i don't remember we'll either call it a deer anyway i really like the initial character building on quinn i appreciate it she killed the deer with a trap and then told the story about how she killed the thing with her teeth she even showed us evidence hair between her teeth and gums along the bite marks of the deer we thought we had a pretty prettier severo on our hands till she laughed too hard to go on with the tall tale Cassius helped her get the deer, the, the deer hair out of her mouth. Wow, I can't talk. I like a committed liar. It's on page 171. Man, yeah, I brutalized that sure. quote. But all, all things considered, Quinn is funny and clever and interesting. She is. And also brutal, but not like that brutal and not taking herself too seriously. Like she's she seems to understand most everything about what's going on in the society. If that tracks. Yeah, no, I, I or, definitely ah, society might be the wrong with this. She gets the institute community. She gets on. She understands the institute. Right. Yeah. I, I think we get a couple of pages of kind of the tightest violence and other things that are going on with friends. You know, they get pimples again because they can't bathe and golds aren't used to this. Darrow like kind of brushes it off. It doesn't really matter. There is some like interstitial things that happen between the community. That's interesting. That brings some of the golds down in terms of characters we really get our first next dose of action with the medbots coming down and being introduced from Olympus. Because like Fitchner said, they don't want the kids to die. They just want the weak to be cleaned without killing them at this point. Because they already killed 50% of the people that are here. Yeah, they're they're beyond the culling. Yeah. So dozens of blinking medbots pour from Olympus's castle. We hear their distant whine. Proctors flicker after them like flaming arrows towards the distant southern mountains. Whatever has happened, one thing is certain. Chaos reigns in the south. What are your thoughts of what's, what the fuck is going on in the south? We never get this answer. What's going on down there? I would guess something probably pretty similar to what goes on in the north or middle, wherever they are. Later, we get introduced to a character called the Jackal. How do you think he plays into that? So, okay, we barely get introduced mm-hmm. to that, but barely. It's like two lines. I I'd like to tackle that after this. How many houses are there? Twelve. There are twelve houses. I feel like the impression is these two houses are kind of the farthest north. Ceres and Mars. Yeah. So the other ten houses are all to the south, presumably a little bit closer together to one another. So with a like, you've played Age of Empires. You've played Warcraft three. Like. If, if you're closer to another civilization, another enemy, you're going to clash a little bit faster. So I think it makes sense that like these two more isolated houses 
kind of hear all the action happening in the background before they've really had the necessity to defend or the opportunity to attack. That was my sort of read on this situation. I have no idea geographically where they are, but the fact that they only heard activity to the south told me that they were farther north. Well, and there were fires. Like, they can see the fires in the south. So something bad, comparatively, like, there, there are definitely, like, things that go bad in the north here as we explore the rest of this chapter, but I, it's not as bad as whatever is going on in the south. Very clearly, something is bad down there. Right. That's true. I just said bad three I, times in a row. I needed to cleanse my mouth. To Awful, be to be terrible, <laughs> horrible. All right. We're good. Bad. Bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> also, I... I feel like talking directly into my microphone makes me sound like I'm cutting in directly this audio and like re-recording things. It's not the it's not the case. My microphone's gain is pretty low, but it's a very sensitive microphone, mm-hmm. so getting really close dramatically changes how it sounds. Anyway, where was I at? I don't fucking Friendo, remember. Friendo, we were talking about the medbots in the south. So, <laughs> thank you, Goodman. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that was not low speak, mid speak, or high speak. That's trash speak. Uh, no, it's just Crossland speak. Yeah. We do call each other friendo all sure. the time. Continue, my friend. Goodman, my Goodman. I don't, I don't know, man. Do you think one I think house just, is dominating them all, or are they all in? in no, fighting? I think they're all. I think they, I think they had a short-lived skirmish, like Darrow had with Cassius and like it was very kind of feel out what's going on and then let's go to our castles and actually like turtle up for a bit. Yeah, true. Play the macro game. Funny. That's an RTS strategy, which means to sit in your base and wait for other people to come to you. If you've ever played Risk, it's the Australia strategy where you just pile everyone on the, uh, the islands in the way. Yeah, it's, that's turtling. Not not only not only waiting for everybody to like come to Sounds you. Sounds like you're using an excuse also, to defend the tactic. But you know, go ahead. Well, no, no, I'm just I'm kidding. describing the tactic. I'm I'm going into detail of what happened. Like you're not just sitting there, like oh yeah, like let's see what happens when they come here. You're you're actively like building troops yeah. and building an army in a strictly defensive position. Mm-hmm. So you essentially max out your army because there's a limited number of like i'm i'm thinking well, starcraft and, and to some degree like obviously like everyone's at 50 yeah yeah but every everyone only has 50 people everyone only has 50 people but like series for instance has everything inside of their castle for the most part outside of crops and some trees um that they're protecting but they have enough inside to survive if everything goes on bad outside but not only just waiting but actively preparing and building up defenses for the incoming eventual attack, whenever that might be. That's what I've never had to describe turtling before. <laughs> it sounds so dumb. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're right. But but that's that's what I'm thinking. I'm sure. thinking they're feeling things out initially with fires and I don't know mock warfare essentially. All right, and then they're all gonna retreat. They know what their enemies are at least unpreparedly capable of and prepare for that. Right. I'm going to give you a little a little nudge on this next question that I have. So as I mentioned earlier, 
Cassius and Darrow's tribe is made up of a lot of named no drafts or low drafts that were funny earlier. You know, Pebble, Weed, Thistle, Screwface, and Clown, for instance. We also gained Leah, Quinn, and Roke. Um, Roke, of course, was kind of on earlier. And they internally challenge each other, toughen them up. If any of the characters present, who do you think dies? Um, Screwface, Weed, Thistle. Simply because we haven't heard anything from them yet. Okay. Pebble and Clown are fine, and, though. <laughs> what? Pebble and Clown are fine, though. Well, they I just didn't remember their names. So you think those like, five all of them. could die? And, and I think those five will die, and I won't care. Because I don't know about okay. them. And this is me not reading into military strategy, but reading into the, the way this book is yeah. written. And how the characters that are important are introduced early and slowly fleshed out. And those characters were introduced by name only from Fitchner. Fitchner, right? No, they He's actually, the that, like, so Cassius or whoever, whoever. jokingly named them. He was like, you are this, you are this, you are this, you are this at a dinner table. Whoever yeah. going down the line of the dinner table. I was thinking it was like the, at the head of the table, but it was kind of at the head of the table as Cassius. Yeah. Thinking like Harry Potter. With tables, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it looks like, right? Yeah, so they were kind of in the middle of the table and Cassius was pointing at the end of the table and named all those people at the end of the table, the low drafts, effectively, those names. So those names are mentioned and then we get nothing and then we get them mentioned by name again as a fact that they're there. (laughs) You're thinking they're just disposable bodies. Yes, absolutely. I'm thinking they're disposable bodies. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, you've got an interesting you've got an interesting perspective on it. So I uh, will. I did. Yep. The thing I'd say is on 178, I fucking died and laughed so hard because we've had almost 20 pages without Severo to some degree. We've got a decent amount of time separated. Yeah. Um, and I fucking love the description of Severo on this page. You know, like we'd mentioned before, he's the fourth house that goes unmentioned when they talk about the four houses, you know, being Antonio, Titus, Jero, Cassius, Severo. It's Severo, and I'm nearly certain he's the only member in that tribe, unless he's adopted wolves by now. It is hard to say (laughs) if he has or hasn't. Our house does not have family dinner, though occasionally we'll see him running along the hillsides at night in his wolfskin, looking, as Cassius put it best, like some sort of hairy demon child on hallucinogens. And, wow. (laughs) It's so, so good. Like, you just imagine, like, a guy stalking around with a wolf skin over his head with, like, a knife and, like, with the shadow light. Like, that's exactly how I think of Severo based on that description. <laughs> uh, continuing off of that. And once Roke even heard something, not a wolf, howling in the shrouded highlands. Some days, Severo walks around all normalish, in- insulting everything that moves, except for Quinn. He makes an exception for her. Delivering meat, uh, meats and edible mushrooms instead of insults. I think he's sweet on her, even though she's sweet on Cassius. Yeah, that's true. That also like, gives a layer to him. It gives a layer to him, but also the Roke even heard something, not a wolf, <laughs> howling in the Shrouded Highlands. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I didn't realize, foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. It ends up being foreshadowed. Like, yeah. It should have been. I should have realized it because of how fucking over the head it is Mm -hmm. it's it's very clear in post yeah i i remember being confused by that statement the first time i read through it like what the fuck is he talking all right 
whatever. Uh, Severo, I, I read it as Servo because Tom Servo and MST3K. And I didn't actually realize it was Severo until this recording. I genuinely thought it was Servo. I didn't make the connection that like, I it's it feels so very dumb <laughs> to not realize that that howling in the distance was explicitly talking about the person that they were talking about on either side of that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, like, oh yeah, no, that, that probably is Severo, huh? Like, <laughs> it could have been anyone, but it is Severo. Right. I, I definitely yeah. agree. I yep. love it. all of Severo's like minor contributions to this chapter just build to his like almost glorious reintroduction. It's so good. Anyway, so part of me thinks that, like, Roke is right on 171. Would it take more than fire and food to convince most of Titus' followers to, like, jump ship? Also, we we passed the line. It's on. It's at the top of 179. <laughs> I think he's wanking yeah, off. Yeah, you keep the, saying 171. I, no, I, you I, keep saying 171. I've actually been saying 170 wine, which isn't better. Um, it's okay. I think he's wanking, wanking off in the bushes, just waiting for us to all kill each other. And that's a great another thing and it's also foreshadowing to the later comment if we thought you were did you think i was wanking off in the bushes and cassius is like yeah i did actually yes (laughs) i actually said that (laughs) a couple of pages ago (laughs) i think rogue's right though like talking about the fire and being like he i i actually genuinely in this reread was swayed to rogue's opinion being like you could probably win over most of Titus's followers just with the ability to feed them. You wouldn't win over Titus and like some of the closest, like his closest people, such as Pollux and Vexus and whatnot. But you could win over pretty much everyone else. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I this this read around specifically, I was more on Rogue's side. I, I felt like it was it would have been the right move to pull him in at this point. No, you're right. You're totally right. I think. I think it's the right move, but also I think it's a little bit naive because of, yes, they'd be swayed by the, it ignores the, <laughs> it, it ignores like Titus's like dominance. Not only, not only Titus, but everybody else. Like you need somebody to actively break rank, which before everybody else which follows, Queen which is kind like of did as did like Leithesel Pebble, etc. Oh, but a little bit, a little it's, bit. It's not quite. The yes, same. it's not the same. So you need someone to break rank before like everybody else follows suit. And that's a tough thing to like expect someone to do, especially like right away. Yeah, it's 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 tough. I, I generally like. So if I were to find myself in a character, I find myself very closely aligned with Roke in a lot of ways. Um, no shock. I think. Is it weird that I find myself with Titus? Yeah, dude, it's bad. Like, say Pax instead. I don't like him. Yeah, but say Pax instead. I guess Pax is. Pro- Just assume okay. he's the big. Pax is less of a prevalent character, so I don't like think of him he, as he a character. He just likes shouting his name a lot, dude. Like. Yeah, I don't do that, but I guess, I guess, yeah. Yeah, Pax is probably the right He's, he's the unsubtle flex of, uh, of people. I'm pretty subtle. Some, I feel sometimes, like. Sometimes. Um, no, I, right. I definitely agree with you. I, I just think I relate with Roke in a way that is to say, like, I would rather appeal to people's humanity as opposed to assume that they're on the opposite side of the spectrum, that they think that everyone has the worst intention. And it's proven time and time again that Roke is wrong in that way. But I 
still think I would try Rogue's path before going Darrow's path. Might might be a weakness, definitely a weakness, definitely a difference in character, but I I generally speaking. But uh so Titus and his goons, trademark, remind me so much in the pages on like 180 and 181 as they're kind of lurking around the edges of Titus and interacting Vexus and Pollux. Remind me of Ursula's eels from The Little Mermaid. You know? Kind of okay. kind of like okay. swimming around her and like commenting on things and being like, yeah, see, yeah, like it, it just it's so so similar to me. I I couldn't I couldn't distance myself yeah, this I'm with you. from uh, from that. They're reiterating what he's saying and whispering all the awful things they're thinking on their own as well. But I'm really glad in the end that Darrow knocks the shit out of Exus. Like it just feels good. Feels feels great. So Passing through that section about the map and everything else, like punching him and then running out, we hit chapter 24, Titus's War, which is a very tight, cruel chapter where Titus goes to war, basically past Ceres, claiming horses, apple trees, slaves out of the people of Ceres and the like. There's like a three page long passage, basically, that does an excellent job of portraying the sort of brutality that this man exerts. Kind of like a blunt weapon. He's just exceptionally cruel. I find the scene, especially with the final raid of the Archer Woman on 185, to be just a sort of brutal rendition of him throwing that lasso around her neck as she peeks out, dragging her out from everyone else and dragging her all the way back. Like, just horrendous. It was interesting seeing, like, the hunting side of things being included in that passage because it means that they have to like figure out if they have a more extended foraging and camping trip i guess they've got to figure out hunting and eating and camping within that themselves Mm -hmm. which is even more close quarters but i guess less important because it never comes up so far any other thoughts on like titus's war in the immediate sense like the the fire that he's running away trying to capture and failing there's no there's no strategy to Titus. There's nothing that equates him as smarter. He's just a blunt instrument to some degree. You know? God, it, it's... Mm, he, he exhibits such great war strategy, but the real, like, quick-thinking decision-making doesn't translate. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think about, like, what I thought about Titus before finishing this chapter or finishing this section... And it's like, I'm only thinking about it through that lens and it's hard. No, I also think it's important to evaluate it through that lens though, right? Like part of the reason that Titus makes all these decisions that's revealed at the very end is because he is a red and he, he does view this whole thing as like a raping of his society. So he doesn't feel bad about any of the decisions that he's making because he feels like it's justified. No, and it's not, not only that it doesn't feel bad, this is exactly what he came for. He is like tight. Titus is what Darrow initially wanted to be an instrument of race. Darrow has now the luxury of understanding the importance of patience and getting through these early phases Mm -hmm. in order to wield more power and therefore take down even more at once. I, I definitely agree with you. So, like, it, it's it's 
Titus is Darrow without foresight. Definitely. Without the like cognitive understanding and the strategy, he's just like the blunt instrument that made it through because of his muscles and everything else, which I think we can definitely talk about at the end a little bit more and lean into it. I think there are a couple of things that are interesting inside of this chunk. Like we'd mentioned earlier, Titus's men, men raiding House Ares, like grabbing the torch, another raid. They have bread thrown at them is like it seems to be a surrender. Titus's men end up eating razor blades in the bread. and Just it's eek, it's badness, it's terrible. And as we mentioned before, the archer girl is made into a slave, seemingly raped. Another woman cries out rape from the fields. The men, the people inside of Ceres feel so much vindiction that they run out over the fields and trample her to death. And it's just, that is one of the most yeah, cruel that's things fucking in brutal. the fucking book so far. That's get, that gets overlooked later on when Darrow confronts Titus talking about killing people. He never mentions her. Well, we don't know that she's dead. And that's also something I put in the notes that she does get carried away by the medbots and they never see her. So it, it doesn't say she gets trampled to death. It just says she gets trampled, doesn't it? It's it's so it would be so insane to assume that she doesn't get trampled to death. Like she was not. There's no guarantee. Like Darrow didn't see her die. She didn't see the pulse. He didn't see the pulse fade. So Titus can claim something against him. It's like, well, that didn't happen. And that's kind of the way that gold society works is like if. We don't see it with our eyes. It doesn't count at this point. Like that's right. the gold, gold side appears. So I think there's an element of that involved with her specifically. Well, but beyond that, if you go later on in the chat in the segment, um, he talk, he's talking to Titus and says that like something's mentioned about him having not killed anybody directly. Killed anyone else. Right. Right. He's tried, but the medbots are too fast. Right. So. It doesn't, they don't mention her. It doesn't explicitly talk about her, but it also doesn't, doesn't explicitly talk about her in either direction. So are we then, because of that statement, to assume that she survived the trampling? Maybe. So the- Or are, or is the lesson that the fact that he just kind of laid her there and then somebody else came out and trampled her means that he's completely innocent of any sort of harm that came. No, to I, I don't think that he's innocent. I also don't think everyone else. No, thinks I, that I, he's innocent. I right. It's it, it's more of like, how should I be approaching this? It's really confusing. Yeah. So I, I think the perspective is, is that the medbots intervene, obviously, when someone's in a fatal or near fatal or dangerous condition. Right. Which is why the flooding of the South, I think, is very interesting because there are so many medbots head south, but they do swarm out consistently after every Titus raid, right? Like the whine of the medbots is consistent through the section, but the whine of the medbots right. is at its worst when this woman is getting trampled. I, I think she either lives or dies. I think it's ominous in that kind of way. She could. It's either. But the question remains or the sort of thought remains that like Titus is so brutal that we actually don't know whether she lived or died and she's going to either live or die in hospital custody. We'll never know the answer. I, I really like the end of this chapter as well after Titus's war is described from this third person perspective for the most part as it ends with, and so as those of any tyrant after a failed war, his eyes turn inward. And it's just so, <laughs> it's shiver inducing because now he's, he's, Right after this, he goes on. He's raping slaves and the women of the house. He, you know, he captures that the gets blamed on 
everyone he else. Explains on everyone else. He captures Cassius and lays his trap. He you know fucking tears Quinn's ear off, and you know, fucking Titus is a problem with taking people's ears off. Yeah, you know, like that's that's a thing through Titus's. Yeah, that's tough. Like, what the fuck, dude? A tough a tough thing to live by. <sighs> Um, this exchange between the trio that I found in 195 was wonderful. Uh, at least it didn't cost you your life. Just my pride, Cassie says. Good. Something you have in abundance from Rook. And it's just, it's, it's good. You know, worst, worst case, what the, what the pissing on you caused? Like nothing really, no real damage. Like you weren't, you didn't have any of this other shit. No real damage right now in this conversation, but that's talked about later on, isn't it? Yeah. Like. No, but like the last couple pages, Severo maybe, or somebody else, they're like, they pissed on him, man. Like we can't hang up his picture. So even though it seems like a pretty innocent joke. It's it's a combo it broken. Actually has, yeah. It actually has a like realistic. Consequence to the action. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. It's, it, it's just, it hits, it hits deep. It hits hard. It's tough. Um, right. Definitely agree. So chapter 26, we enter on page 195, is very interesting, titled Mustang. Mustang obviously being horse related. We we very quickly learn that Mustang is the name of the like Mustang is obviously the fastest horse that at the time was they were aware of. Um, and as such, the nickname of the Hot woman that Darrow has seen multiple times is Mustang, as we catch. She does actually get named in this section as well, but it's very brief. She's she's interesting. Mustang's very interesting. She's one of the highest draft picks picked before Darrow was. And we know that Darrow was picked in the first round. What does Mustang kind of gain out of their interaction? What does she get out of it with Darrow? I mean, truly, I would think it would get almost nothing, right? Like, they took advantage of something that already existed. Why not also take advantage of it? Right, right. So if there are 12 houses and they all have traits, and we assume that most of the other golds kind of know, have like some inkling from their parents or some other impression, it, it becomes more interesting, right? Like, it becomes more interesting when you understand that some of the golds in society maybe have an impression that they can passed down to their kids. So uh, Mustang here has an impression of House Mars being basically the place for burnouts or victors. And she assumes with the way that shit's going, because she knows it's going on with Titus, that they're fucking burnouts. No, that's a that's a fair assumption at that point. Um, what, what's very interesting is obviously they have this, they have like a very flirty exchange where they're looking to like tackle the horse and everything else between the two of them. Cassius is also flirting, saying she's very beautiful, but he's obviously been brutalized the day before by Titus. And Mustang also refers to him as Reaper with the scythe, which is interesting because obviously Sunblade Scythe, uh, Nothing's been really like alluded to. She's the first one to call him Reaper directly, isn't she? No, 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 the, no, no I, Fitchner, not. I think, was. Fitchner said, yeah, you, you look like a fucking Grim Reaper or something like that. Yeah. So it, it kind of becomes a, a, a thing, right? And so they talk about Mercury, they talk about a number of the other houses that might have been higher. And in, in the post of the exchange, after they finally, finally tackle and try to steal the horse, instead, she looks like she's going to kiss him, you know, making a kissy face. Instead, she whistles and the whole plan becomes a bit more complicated. I hear hooves. Everyone has a bloody damn horse but us on page 199. 
It's like Mars just got fucked on their total outlook of their like house. What they get? They got castles and two towers. Everyone else got horses and food and shit. But Mars has to fend for themselves. If yeah. that. Right. Something I found very interesting is in post they they come up with a plan right after like this this conflict goes on and they leave and they dive in. But the plan seems to be to force conflict. And this is all part of the plan to contact Mustang and Tonia and everything else. This is maybe the most convoluted part of this entire section, but it's also like it's hinted at well enough. I, I don't know. That was that was my impression that. But like the whole plan with uh, with Cassius and everyone else is is very interesting um, because obviously they're only anticipating so many variables. And then fucking Severo, the monster wolf man, shows up to save the day when they're in the middle of the pond, surrounded by Minervans, taking people down with his twin knives, just being a fucking. And he describes it as like, I see a I see a black wolf <laughs> on the edge of the pond. And it's just, it ends up just being, uh, uh, not Servo, Jesus, Severo, wearing the pelt of a black wolf <laughs> from head to toe, yeah. which I felt like was great visualization. He's, I think, yeah, he's, he's one of my favorite there, characters. There's just so much good, sure. there's so much good like imagery here uh, on like 201, right? So in, in terms of what we're talking about, fear trickles down my spine, something howls. It is not a wolf. It can't be what I think it is. Blue light flashes as a stunned pike flails in the air. The boy screams another curse. A knife got him. Someone runs to his aid and electricity flares blue again. I see a black wolf standing over one body as another falls. Darkness again. Silence, then the mournful whine of medbots descending from Olympus. I hear a familiar voice. So what is it that she thinks it is? Uh, Minerva, Minerva... Sorry, not Minerva. Mustang had already left at this point. Yeah, she had left because she had decided to lay siege on the rest of the house. Okay, gotcha. Either way, she's going to need more RAM, probably. More RAM? I don't know why I said that. Are you down? (laughs) Maybe a little bit. So I love... So obviously they had like this whole plan going into the engagement with Titus because they had to take Titus down somehow. How did they do it? They engage another house. They create a backup plan where Ceres potentially intervenes, giving Minerva giving Minerva standard Ceres as kind of a defense just in case, um, or like offering it basically, like being ready to offer it. Um, what's fascinating right. here is that neither Darrow nor Cassius assumed that they would have their own standard, and yet fucking Sabro, the fucking boy, comes out of this story as they're wandering out of the lake, freezing their dicks off. After they assumed he was just wanking in the fucking bushes. So I stole the standard from the keep and buried it in the woods. You just stole it. Just like that. Crazy little sod. You're prime mad. 100th pick and you're prime mad. Page 202. And it's just right. it's so good because Severo is fucking insane. <laughs> yeah, on, is. on page 203 is our, is our like quote that we keep talking about all the time, uh, which is the wanking off in the bushes. What do you think I've been doing this whole time? Waking off in the bushes? Kind of. Yeah, actually, it's just, <laughs> we, we've talked about it a couple of times. But like, it's just important to reference as we yes, pass it. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. It's just, it's so good. As a moment between the three of them, it's just a great bonding moment. Isn't it kind of ironic to some degree that Minervans, which, you know, for, for those who don't know, Minerva is the 
direct Roman successor to Athena. So Athenians and Athens get overrun in the fashion that they do on 204. Like, I find it very funny that House Mars, House Ares, the, the people who are the closest to Spartans in the degree that's talked about by Fitchner and everything else are overrun. Like, it, it feels deeply ironic the smart kids get bullied out i'm definitely with you but what's the other like what's the alternative option well i mean minerva could have conquered them that would have been interesting right they they, in theory had the upper hand they obviously beat back titus they just didn't hold enough ground hypothetically hypothetically then she's still culling people so it is about owning and that's why she ultimately doesn't right that's ultimately why there's this period of negotiation and diplomacy between the groups i also like the image of fucking titus just like knocking a man out of the tower window just yes. classically badass yes he just fucking like threw mm-hmm. him out the window mm-hmm. i loved it and everyone else shattered like not shattered but scattered after seeing the body hit it's i, I mean like Titus's excuses like I didn't kill enough people in the end, but it's just it's fascinating how incredibly brutal he is throughout these chapters. I don't know. I also love so we we see that and then we also see Darrow and Cassius raiding the Minerva base. Right. Which is so good. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I, I love their raid. I love like them going in and like Darrow deciding that the, what he needs to do after weeks of having shitty cooked food is to steal the fucking cook. <laughs> like him, him asking people, are you June? Are you June? And like punching out anyone that isn't June. <laughs> It's so good <laughs> until he finds the cook, knocks her out, throws her over his shoulder and runs back. He's just like, you know what? A good cooked meal will be it will make a big difference. Like, so let's make a serve of the fucking cook. It's just it's so good. Oh, that's hilarious. That's <laughs> and and Cassie specifically. So the line is on uh, 205. June, I call out. She turns into my stun pike and shudders as the electricity dumbs down her muscles. That's how I steal the cook. Cassie's. Finds me running with June over my shoulder through the gardens. What the hell? She's a cook, I explain. <laughs> and it's just, it's like, <laughs> that's just. And Cassius starts to laugh uncontrollably, <laughs> which I think I found fucking it's, hilarious. It's so good. There's there's so much fun that kind of happens in this section when they're raiding the base. You know, they carve Mars into the table. They they break everything. I, I don't know. I, I really appreciated like this section of relief. Yeah, carving their name in, even though they actively thought about not yeah. doing that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I also like the line. He likes his carved, curved knives too much. I think he whispers them when he talks about Sephiro. (laughs) It just adds to the perspective of Sephiro being absolutely batshit insane. Absolutely. It's it's too good. But Darrow at this point has obviously earned his nickname Reaper. We engage then with House Minerva and we get this whole fight scene, obviously, which escalates with on 209 with Pax Outelamanus as as he like howls. A video game character, if nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. Dude, the, <laughs> the guy is terrifying in every way and properly characterized as this giant hinted throughout the chapter. It's or throughout the section. It's just such a good, such a yeah. Oh, my for external sure. drive is actually named Pax for the record. <laughs> I'm just letting the record show. I, I, it's I taken. love Pax. <laughs> and, and it's a brutal introduction to Pax, obviously, but I love him. He's just a monster. 
He's a monster. <clears throat> I, I love the uh, the bit like he shouts his name at me like I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> it's it, I think it's on 210. Paxow Telemannos, he beats his large pike against his chest and his puff and hits puffy haired clown so hard. My friend flies back for four meters. He shouts again. Paxow Telemannos and is a prick licker. I mock. <laughs> it's like, yes, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's going to go well Darrow's for him. Just, so consciously aware of like making a joke of this man even though he's a fucking giant i i really like on 212 we get a bit of humanity right the war for the most part has been won by mars you know obviously as the fight continues pax does tackle the horse and everything else but manages to conquer majority of the force without actually conquering pax conquer in the sense of like fight back but mustang continues to negotiate given the violence of titus like titus obviously is a bad fucking dude. Uh, but I really like the line. Gods don't come down in life to mete out justice. Powerful do it. That's what they're teaching us. Not only the pain in gaining power, but the desperation that comes from not having it. The desperation that comes from when you are not a gold. It's on page 212, obviously. Right. I think that's so interesting from Darrow's perspective. It's an amazing yeah. quote. Like, I love mm-hmm. that quote. It definitely feeds into that conversation with, oh God, what's her name? Mustang. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's not who I'm thinking of. In his grade, I guess, but not in his school. Oh, Leah. Right. She's the one who's like, well, it's not right. And he scorns her back. I don't know if that's who I'm thinking of, but I think that works. Anyway, let's continue. So I I love I love that chunk. And I think it really like it's a benediction to some degree of what Mustang also thinks is reality. Mustang believes in proper and fair judgment. Like she truly embodies a characteristic that I think is very Athenian, very Minervan. And it's it's interesting. It's more democratic, so to speak, than a lot of the other power structures. But she also gives prelude to a future problem. You should hope that is not true. They made they are made by the strong. You should hope that's not true. Mustang side says says quietly to me. Why? Because there is a boy here like you. My proctor calls him the jackal. He is smarter and cooler and stronger than you. He will win this game and make us his slaves if the rest of us go about acting like animals. So please, hurry up and evolve. <sighs> That's a tough thing yeah. to hear. Yeah, so we know that... From the hotel clerk. <laughs> we know that Titus <laughs> is awful, right? And now we're presented with a picture of the jackal. It's like, oh god. What could be worse than Titus? Apparently somebody, somebody else, else that's similar to Darrow, right? That she's saying has a similar aptitude or reason. And right. then on top of that, which is impressive. So we're, we're given that aptitude comparison between the Jackal, which I'll ask a follow-up question on here before we end. We end, obviously, with uh, with Titus. And, and my question for you is the Jackal is painted as worse than Titus here by her. What could possibly be worse than Titus? In your mind. Hmm. Fuck, man. Oh, God. I don't have an answer for this. <laughs> Straight up, I don't. I don't know. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that as an answer. That's that's fine. So over the next five pages, it's an interrogation. The chapter is called My Brother. It's an interrogation of Titus that gradually reveals that he himself is a red, just like Darrow. He slips up and says, bloody damn. In addition to all this other character reveals that shows that he doesn't care about gold society in the way that everyone else does. This is this is the pause point. This is the cliffhanger that we've left you on. 
what the fuck do you think about this this section oh god i just want to read more man <laughs> yeah but what do you think about? i don't it? know i just want to read more contemplate tell me what you're thinking it's so well like i was so pleasantly surprised about this because i felt like last time we did anything similarly things were not uniform i have so many thoughts about this episode so titus right like he's it's so it's so clear when we hit this point that something has been wrong with this character that's made him different than every other gold. Up until now, he is the corrupted king, so to speak. Like he he is the the royalty that has been sitting on the throne but eaten from the bottom up. Corrupted king's a good call. That's that's totally accurate, right? So he has been feasting on the joys of of being a gold. Right. And mm-hmm. also been punishing the golds for their same luxuries. Right. There's no, no care in the world about any of that. Like he, he cuts off, he Van Gogh's Quinn without a question, with, without a question. He does that to several women over the course of this episode, over the course of these chapters and just like mails the ears to people. It's right. Like, Haha, I don't give a shit whether or not you're a slave. You'll get replaced later. It's going to be fine. You're a fucking gold. I can cut your ear off if I can't kill you. At the and very least, I can brutalize it's you. It's so hard to look at this in the same context as what we'll gain in leaning forward for 10 degrees for 15 minutes. Like, things change so much very quickly in this book. Yeah, right, right. So the question lies, you know, what does Darrow do about Titus? What do you think Darrow does? about Titus? Um, I think he's very, very lucky that he's already made the stand for um, keeping Titus as opposed to giving him up to other houses. I think he still has to punish him. I don't think it'll be the same as it was before. I think it'll be more like, hey, like, hey, just so you know, I'm going to have to punch you in the face. But it's it's for the sake of both of us and keeping our identity safe. Right, right. The, the thing that I would add there is that Darrow knows that Titus is red. Titus does not oh, know I think that, that I think that'll red. go. I, I think that will even out quickly because I, I'm, I'm operating under the assumption that Titus learns fairly quickly before the next big battle that Darrow is also a red. And I think that happens very soon out of shock rather than out of a calculated like choice to disclose information, if that makes sense. Sure. I I definitely get that. I I think it's also a good way of leaning into the storytelling here is to hope that Titus and Darrow can agree to be on the same side. But what if they don't agree to be on the same side? One of them dies. And I think it's Titus, because he is an ogre of a man, but isn't necessarily as witty. He's smart. He's intelligent. He's able to pass the test, but I don't think he's as witty and as like quick in his decision making. Totally. totally. So I think it, okay. I think if they're in a one on one, I think Daryl wins. All things else, uh, everything else equal. That's totally fair. Okay. So I'm going to call for PJ's predictions right now. So we're gonna we're gonna switch into that mode, right? Like not evaluating the text, but like call back to what you want. So, like you're saying with Titus, you think that Darrow has to either submit Titus or likely kill him. Mm-hmm. Darrow has also promised Titus to Cassius at this point. He said that if anyone is going to kill him, because Darrow himself alluded to the fact that Titus might have killed Julian instead of himself, 
as tight as it can. All right. Uh, Here's my off the wall prediction. Okay. Digging into both of those. Darrow decides to keep Cassius around. Second, third day, whatever it is. Titus decides to go for a bath. Gets a little drunk. Starts just kind of spewing information. And alludes to, but does not explicitly say anything about being a red. And Darrow happens to be there. And for the betterment of the secrecy of what's going on, he decides to kill. God, I want. I keep wanting to say Cassius. Um, Titus. Titus. Kills Titus. That's my prediction. It's a little vague. Sure. But I think... I think Titus poses a threat of being not necessarily the most cunning, but he is well equipped to going into battle. Yeah. And I think I, that's helpful. I, I can definitely see that. When um do you think talking about Titus and his red heritage, do you think that he is actually employed by the son of Ares or a different organization? Or how did he get my guess is Something similar to Darrow, but probably a high rank. Okay, but what does something similar to Darrow mean? Like, is he a member of the Son of Ares, or is he not? Mm, Call it maybe some interaction with him. I don't think. I don't think that they would intentionally release two different covert ops without at least warning them of each other, based on how like real thorough they were. But I think a similar organization working could do it t- tangentially would do something at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Could do it. Totally. I get that. Okay. So other prediction or like question that's lingering. So Darrow kind of has the choice or the option to, at the moment, to dominate all of House of Minerva to trap them, including Mustang. Why doesn't he do that? Uh, Because he's so, uh, so focused on protecting himself from the rest of House Mars. Okay. I think that's the biggest thing is his exterior is constantly tied to protecting everything, everything like, okay. He doesn't give himself enough freedom to move forward. All right. All right. So here's, here's my final question for you. It's really just kind of the vague one. Any other predictions for next week's reading? Sometime next week, Cassius learns that Darrow killed his brother. It's a good one. That's going to happen. Else? I'm thinking next week that's that happens. Yeah. It's good. That's tough. Like, how tough would that be for them as a group? That'd be tough. At this point. I don't really have anything beyond that. That's what I've got. That's, that's number one. Okay. All right. With that, next week is an all-important 40-page blitz. This is actually going to be the shortest section that we're going to do, and especially that we've done in a long time. But there's a lot that happens in these next 40 pages. It should be exciting. We're reading until the end of part three, gold, leaving it on the end of that section before we move into part four. So we're we're reading part three. Reading to the end of part three. End of part three, sorry. Thank you for listening to Words and Whiskey. We hope you've built up a tolerance to us. Subscribe to us on your preferred platform like Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever else you use. And check us out at our website, wordsandwhiskey.show. We filled our top shelf with our favorite cocktail recipes as well as other important information for you. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at wordswhiskeypod. All those links and more can be found in our show notes.
A five-star rating on the platform of your choosing goes a long way to springing us up on them leaderboards and getting us noticed. We're just two dudes helping encourage people to read and get out of their comfort zone while thinking critically about literature. Thanks for listening, and we bloody damn better see you next week.